0: Like me, life crazy. I put in too much work, yeah. So when I hear y'all talk, I just smirk. <laughs> no animosity, <laughs> ain't nobody stopping no, no, no. You mad cause your baby mama jocks. I, I, I can see both of y'all watching me. you. Too, see. Jezebel, see you straight ahead. He tried to rape me, put you in a cell, Click. run around. Talking all my business. Between you and me, have to put some discs. Every move you make is like judas uh, I get sick of the ones who thinking they can do us. Like, if they never knew us, I know we're the jewels. He's the way we blew it. So, all I see is jealousy. And all the ones who said they love me. Talking to my enemies, but my enemies said my homies tried to kill me. Now tell me what the real reason is. I'll convince i bet you now. Really. You should go back to where you came from. i like be in America. Come on out and dialogue with us. As Cut to the Chase will be broadcasting live this Sunday, February 11th at 11 a.m. From the Eastside Cafe located at 4569 Huntington Drive. Right in if you're all wife right in America. Join us in the conversation. Unity or disunity. Inclusion or the so-called others. They took Year. Here you are free and you have pride. As you stay on your
1: own
2: side.
0: Or not. Well, at least the dark skinned ones. Join us in the conversation live at the Eastside Cafe, 4569 Huntington Drive in Los Angeles, 11 a.m. Hey, this is Tom
1: Welcome to Beneath the Surface. I'm Susie Wiseman, wishing you all a good holiday season. On today's program, we talk to Gabriel Hetland, who has just published his study of populist experiments in Venezuela and Bolivia that show the complexity of implementing participatory democracy at the grassroots level. His book, Democracy on the Ground, examines the possibilities, limits, and concrete cases of participatory democracy including participatory budgeting at the local level during the high point of Latin America's left turn in the 2010s. His study immediately begs the question, What kind of democracy? It's a pertinent question here in the United States where democracy is under threat by one of our two major parties. We get Gabriel Hetland's views when our program returns in just a moment. We're also gonna ask for your support to keep this program and this station on the air. Welcome to Beneath the Surface. I'm Susie Wiseman. And today we're going to talk to Gabriel Hetland. He's written a book called Democracy on the Ground, which immediately begs the question, what kind of democracy? Here in the United States, democracy is under threat. In fact, it's the key question today. And it's under threat by one of our two main parties, namely the Trumpist Republicans. But here we're fighting to maintain a very flawed democracy, which we're finding out is still better than no democracy. Uh, but for the left, the fight is defined as one for complete democracy or a genuine democracy for a system in which the vast majority have meaningful participation in the decisions which affect our lives much more than simply voting every two or four years. Gabriel Hetland spent nearly two years in both Venezuela and Bolivia doing a study of two populist experiments that show the complexity of implementing democracy on the grassroots level. And he was surprised by what he found. We're going to get his views, but let me welcome you to the show, Gabriel.
3: Thank you, Susie. So great to be
1: here. Yeah, really great. So Gabriel is an associate professor of Latin American, Caribbean, and Latino, Latina studies at SUNY Albany. And he writes about democracy, politics, and social movements in Latin America. This book, Democracy on the Ground, is published by Columbia University Book and just came out this year. Available everywhere you buy books, I assume. So (laughs) welcome to the show. This is a pretty valuable study, and it shows, I guess, what's possible, um, but it also shows what the limits are. So I think the best way to start is not with your study. <laughs> but look, we'll get to that. But just looking right now, we had a very good example this weekend in Chile where, you know, you had the second plebiscite on a proposed constitution in two years. Both were defeated Um, The first, because it was too, let's say, all the different things it was for the population. It was too radical, too diverse, too democratic, too multicultural or multinational or plurinational, something that, you know, didn't go over well with Chilean nationalism. And the second one was to the right of the Pinochet constitution that was imposed in 1980. So that was also defeated. So now the struggle in Chile or the struggle to get a new constitution is all but done. Um so let's let's begin with that. I know you're a Latin Americanist, so you can talk a little bit about that and then we'll circle back to your two examples. How do you see what happened in Chile?
3: Yeah, I mean you know the whole sort of last couple of years have been a bit disappointing and sad. You had the amazing sort of estal social or social uprising in 2019 and then Boric's election after that, and that was, you know, hopeful. And it, you know, Boric may not be the most radical left of the sort of leftists within Chile within Latin America, but he's, you know, he's a genuine leftist. He was involved in in promoting this very radical, as you said, very far left constitution. And clearly, you know, the one that didn't pass a year ago was perceived as sort of being out of step with voters within Chile. I haven't looked closely, but some of the analysis I looked at, suggested that maybe if they did more mobilizing, more educating, more sort of talking to people on the ground, but I'll, I would let, you know, Chilean experts really analyze why it failed. And then to me, it's mind boggling that anyone would try to promote a constitution to the right of Pinochet's constitution and expect it to succeed. I mean, I think what you're seeing is that, you know, Chileans may not want Uh, radical left, far left constitution. Although I don't know, the jury may be out if that was under different circumstances or better promoted or this, that and the other, but they clearly don't want a far right uh, constitution either. And so the latest I've heard is that they're just going to shelve this, they're going to move on to some other sort of reforms and try to get beyond it that, you know, from the outside seems like a sensible thing to do. It seems like just sort of putting it aside for a while, probably is the way to go. But it, it does seem like a Missed opportunity, you know, and if you compare it to some of the cases that I do study, um, Venezuela, Bolivia, they passed very radical leftist constitutions successfully with massive majorities. So it it may speak to the national differences, but it also may speak to the sort of global difference that unfortunately, we're in more of a right wing moment now, even within Latin America, than we were, you know, 15, 20 years ago, when Venezuela and Bolivia were sort of at the height of their left turn. So um, different things happening.
1: Yeah, I think we should, you know, just to sort of close out the discussion on Chile, because it's it's really important. And one can never underestimate what happened during the pandemic, because there was, you know, this gigantic social movement that erupted in 2019 that was literally, you know, expressed the biggest hope, I think, in the world. Uh, It was quite spontaneous and led to um, this discussion for a new constitution. And as you said, Gabriel, they didn't do enough outreach to the population. The right dominated the media and raised all kinds of fears, but one of the things that has happened followed from the time that they proposed the Constitution and sat down to write it. You know, one was the pandemic and the other was a pretty dire economic crisis. You know, there was, there's definitely a crisis of political representation and a real precarity to popular life. And so the Chilean economy was very weak at this time, and so the other thing that happened, which is pretty crazy, is that they had an influx of immigration that they'd never had before. Chile, you have to, you know, it was cut off by the Andes and the sea. And it was, you know, apart from a very large section of indigenous people, it's pretty homogeneous. And then you got thousands, maybe tens of thousands of Venezuelans coming in, fleeing Maduro and the economic crisis there. And just, you know, in terms of temperament and character, Venezuelans are so different than Chileans. They're gregarious and they're outgoing and Chileans are reserved. And so this was you know, crisis in a way in Chile. And then you also got a lot of Haitian immigrants. And so all of a sudden you have different people in a very insular society and the right pounced on that too. So I think that both of those things are partially explanatory for the rightward shift, but thankfully, and we'll end in this part, it was trounced the caste ultra-right constitution uh, was trounced in the plebiscite by more than 10 points. I'll do another show on that. But I think we could say that this is the close of that cycle of revolt. And now we're going to move on to something new uh, as yet unknown. But I think just that little, you know, reference to the effect that's what of what has happened in Venezuela on politics elsewhere in Latin America is a good way to kind of circle back to go to Venezuela first in your experiment, because since you've done this work, Venezuela has been on a continuing downward spiral. So let's, you know, I guess maybe just give you the chance to sort of introduce what you did there in your two years and and what you saw.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the book um, highlights a much more positive moment in Venezuela. And I often say in talks and on shows that it's almost hard to believe, you know, what I'm talking about in the book, because it's so distant, sadly, from what's happening now. But it really did happen. And it really was pretty amazing. So I'll, you know, talk a little bit about that. So the the book is a study of four cities, two in Venezuela, two in Bolivia. And it's a comparison of participatory democratic reform in those cities. And as you talked about, participatory democracy is a really different (laughs) form of democracy. It's a sort of real form of democracy. It harkens back to ideas of direct democracy in ancient Athens. Um, And it's about ordinary people really exercising control over decisions that affect their lives. And so that's what I wanted to study in these four cities. But I did it with a little bit of a twist looking at cities that were governed by left and right wing parties in Venezuela and Bolivia. And I went into it, you know, with a sort of common sense left thinking and a scholarly thinking as well that i'm of course going to find more success in the two left-run cities and much less success or just outright failure in terms of participation in the two right-run cities but what i found was actually you know very interesting and different it was success in the left and right-run city in mm-hmm. venezuela and failure in the left and right-run city in bolivia so i spent a lot of time in my fieldwork, trying to document that, trying to sort of describe what was happening, and then, you know, years and years analyzing it, thinking about it, trying to explain it. And the explanation that I've come up with is a combination of national and local politics in the two countries and in the four cities. And in a nutshell, I argue that in Venezuela, Hugo Chavez and the Chavez regime that he oversaw achieved a form of leftist hegemony, specifically a left populist hegemony, so hegemony in a Gramscian sense, where they exercised moral and intellectual leadership and real political leadership over society as a whole, not forever, but for a number of years. And they succeeded in pulling the right pretty far to the left. And so in Mm -hmm. particular cities, including The city of Sucre, so this municipality in Caracas that I studied, which was governed by a center-right party, they governed sort of like Lula. I mean, they actually looked to Lula. They said Lula is our model in some ways. And they did participatory budgeting and they did it, you know, really robustly. I mean, they devoted up to $35 million a year. They had a thousand meetings a year, tens, you know, dozens of officials, thousands of citizens going out to these meetings, citizens having, you know, a significant amount of control over the budgetary process. And so I argue that this sort of leftist hegemony on the national level pulled the right with them. And I I talk about uh, sort of Parallel to Margaret Thatcher and Tony Blair in the book, Um, you know, Margaret Thatcher was out, I think in 2002, what her greatest accomplishment was. And she said, Tony Blair, uh, you know, we forced our opponents to change their minds. And so I argue that something similar happened in Venezuela, that Chavez you know, force his opponents to change their mind, force them to play on the left's terrain for a number of years. And there was particular material conditions and political conditions and even sort of regional and geopolitical conditions that fostered that that we can get into. But it had these really interesting effects. And Bolivia was quite different. So hmm. Bolivia elected Evo Morales, a social movement leader, the first indigenous president in a profoundly racist country, you know, basically dealing with apartheid-like conditions for, you know, centuries. He's elected in 2005 following a revolutionary crisis lasting about five years, and he brings immense hopes to Bolivians. Some of those hopes were fulfilled, and there was a new constitution in 2009 successfully implemented. It did promote uh, plurinational identity, 36 languages recognized, all sorts of advances and, you know, successful reforms, but in terms of participation, surprisingly unsuccessful in the two cities that I looked at. One of them is El Alto, which was governed by an affiliate of the mosque, but by a mosque mayor during the time I was doing My fieldwork, MAS, is the movement to socialism, Evo Morales' party. And then the other one was Santa Cruz in the eastern lowlands, which was a right-wing governed city. Um, And both of the cities, surprisingly, were similar in failing to implement participatory reform. And so I argue that a key reason, not the only, but a key reason for that is that under Morales, Bolivia's national government took a passive revolutionary route. And that's another Gramscian concept that basically highlights the demobilization of previously activated popular subjects. So um, under Morales, there was this incredible social ferment, social organization, social mobilization. Once he got into office, he sort of used that for a number of years but then from around 2009 2010 onwards really demobilized popular movements engaged in some repression of popular movements nothing like previous governments or subsequent ones i should say but still surprising um, and the effect at the local level in some in the two cities that i studied was failure of participation the governments were you know really trying to Organized social control rather than well, controlling society rather than letting society control the government. So it was really unexpected and different. Um, so those national level differences sort of set the framework. And then the book is really exploring with deep ethnography what is actually happening in these cities. And I didn't even really talk about the left Venezuelan city, which had a profoundly successful participatory experiment that touched, you know, moved in the direction of a sort of democratic socialism at the local level. So I think the the book gets into a lot, but this is sort of, you know, the overall explanation in a nutshell.
1: Great. So there's a couple of things that I I mean, I want to get into the sort of giant question about the limits of a democracy under capitalism, um, even in a left social democratic form. Looking at what you found in these forms, because you're right, that it was quite different, Venezuela and uh, Bolivia, but they had certain things in common as well with charismatic leaders, as you showed. And Venezuela, of course, was able to advance under Chavez because oil flowed freely and there were high oil revenues. So, but as you say, and of course, as we all know, it was a top down left populist government, Uh, but there were these real examples of participatory democracy. And I remember I went to a conference and I met uh, a guy who was the Bolivarian consul in San Francisco. He was a far- left guy, and I spent a lot of time and later went to see him. And we talked a lot about what was going in that going on in Venezuela. and he he talked about what was about it in terms of limits of human resources. You know, he said Chavez was very open to profoundly democratic efforts, but it was difficult to get people uh, mobilized, educated, you know, desiring to participate at that level. Now that was earlier on. So I was really kind of interested in your examples where there were things like participatory budgeting so you know and that is something where the population as you say is able to decide how to allocate money that's you know given to the locality so they make big investment decisions that would mean what like opening schools making sure there's street lights all kinds of things that we might see mundane but that we don't ever get to participate in this country. So I guess I'm I'm sort of wanting you to describe a little bit more how that participatory budgeting came about and what it really entailed.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And to sort of you know, set the context with what the, you know, council in in California and San Francisco uh, was sort of talking about, I think under Chavez, it was a lot of contradiction. So you did have this sort of top-down character to the Bolivarian revolution, the Bolivarian process, but there was a lot of bottom-up initiative. Chavez talked about participatory democracy, the 1999 constitution, which was pretty radical and leftist was successfully approved, embraced explicitly participatory and protagonistic democracy there was lots of laws that actually tried to concretize that one of which was for participatory budgeting in practice in lots of venezuelan cities including both cities that i look at in the book uh, under chavista sort of mayors and city councils those experiments were thwarted to some extent and there was a lot of sort of efforts to implement participation, but at the same time, sort of top-down control. Mm -hmm. So in some cases, they burst outside of the bounds of that. And the two cases I'm looking at, that was the case. Both of them, interestingly, were opposition uh, mayors, one from the left, one from the right. But they were utilizing the rhetoric, the institutional tools, and the hopes of Chavismo. And they did so fairly successfully. This is, you know, one of the things I get into is just sort of looking at how did this happen? What did it look like on the ground? And it it looks like real democracy. I mean, it looks like people really exercising control over their own lives. Torres, which is the most successful of the four cases, this one's in Venezuela, had an amazing participatory budget. It covered 100% of investment budget decisions, which are decisions about new spending. Um, There were vigorous debates about... You know, should we fund a tractor that could also be an ambulance and could take children to school in the rain? Um, and there'd be people saying no, because, you know, if the wheels break, we won't have funds to do that. So we have to have an investment that can be sustainable. And other people would say, well, we need streetlights because it's a women's safety issue and it's a, you know, an issue. And they'd say, well, there's blackouts because of our electricity crisis, which has to do with climate change, which has to do with oil, which has to do with Venezuela's whole trajectory historically. So these amazing rich discussions, but then very mundane, okay, well, we're going to fund the school instead, you know, and so there was all sorts of things. And that, you know, officials talked about that as citizens learning to govern themselves, learning how to disagree and live with the disagreement, learning how to lose votes and come back and win votes the next time. So it was, you know, discussion based, there'd be some, you know, voting of representatives of communal councils and parish assemblies. So these different sort of decentralized forms of participatory democracy. And it wasn't always perfect. There was disagreements, but it worked really well. And it was, you know, it honestly felt magical. I mean, it felt to me sort of what I think of when I read Trotsky, sometimes, you know, he talks about, you know, the idea of revolution is the masses taking control of their destiny. That's what I saw in Venezuela. And again, it wasn't perfect. There's all sorts of contradictions. It was based on these historically high oil prices. It was based on, you know, this sort of flawed charismatic model, but it did actually work. So and let so me, that- let me
1: just come in right there, because sure. I, as I said, you know, just earlier that there's limits to what can be done under capitalism because you still have private ownership but as you say in your book, and as we all know, there was a nationalization in uh, Venezuela and partial nationalization of hydrocarbons in Bolivia. But in, in Venezuela, it was deeper, right? And that meant that there were higher revenues going to the state and that allowed for public investment, presumably also larger budgets going to these localities that made you it know, impossible for them to even discuss the kinds of things that they were discussing. But so I guess I'm kind of interested... Again, on the limits of that, especially in Venezuela, because it seemed to me at the time, you know, that I mentioned I was talking to the very radical far left uh, consul about the problems that just seemed in Venezuela so much hinged on the popularity of Chavez himself, a very charismatic figure. So the big question was, could the revolution outlive him? you know what happens afterwards and then as you know your book shows he died in 2013 and then we get Maduro who's just you know we'll go into that perhaps maybe not but it changed absolutely everything so so i guess the the i'm dancing around the question of you have an excellent sort of demonstration of a mobilized popular class right that is in these cities that you're talking about more in some and less in others taking part in the actual day-to-day governance. It's reading it, it's it's a little bit like, you know, the excitement that, you know, I certainly have when I studied the Soviets just after the revolution, but also just before the revolution, too. I think that was even more profound. And then, of course, the defeat was even worse. But so I guess it's just like talking a little bit about how important it was. We also have in Bolivia charismatic popular leader who becomes more corrupt. And then, you know, it moves into this coup. So... Did these participatory local experiments last beyond these leaders? And, you know, how much were they able to go even deeper into, you know, questions of how industries were operating in their area?
3: Yeah. So, I mean, these are great questions. You're touching on so (laughs) many huge issues and the limits of sort of democracy under capitalism was clear. And, you know, these are places the whole pink tide was not a full-scale revolution it was an electoral process that was highly incomplete very partial and you still have elites in place living there they didn't all get killed they didn't all flee and there's consequences to that i mean some of the consequences might be more positive with pluralism continuing to exist in fragmentary form some of them were less positive where elites are you know really really trying to drag down those processes Um, and so those contradictions are playing out and then of course you know, the nationalizations didn't get rid of capitalism. Um, They did sort of change the character of capitalism in some ways. You know, you had a lot of decommodification of uh, social services and electricity, which was maybe not done in the best way. I mean, I think there's lessons for thinking about left governance in general, and you got to pay the bills. You got to, you know, you got (laughs) to sort of figure out how to uh, survive and have sustainability. The question of sort of political succession, I think, was not thought about a lot under Chavez, and that was something that people did occasionally whisper: "Hey, we should think about this." But those conversations were usually shut down. He was a larger-than-life figure, which means that when he died, he left a huge hole. And Maduro, you know, I, I have a very negative view of him today. I'd say when probably he got mine
1: bit, is more so.
3: <laughs> yeah, it, it could well be. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Weyland's do as well today, but I think he was dealt a really tough hand. I mean, and shortly within a year of taking office, the opposition, you know, implemented these huge protests that were uh, violent in many instances, led to a lot of deaths. There was a crash in the oil price, you know, about a year and a quarter after he had taken office. And so that was another major thing. U.S. sanctions started to um, bite under Obama and overcompliance with sanctions, no doubt had an effect. And so and then there was all sorts of contradictions from the Chavez era that Chavez was sort of able to manage because he had support from the revolutionaries and the corruptees and the generals and the popular movements and all these. So he could sort of play them off each other. But uh, Maduro had a much more fragile sort of situation. And so when there was economic contradictions having to do with currency and sort of major contradictions of the currency policy, which themselves date back to imperialist aggression, you know, supported by the U.S. U.S. in 2002 and 2003 against Chavez, but they never really dealt with those contradictions. Mm-hmm. All of that comes to a head under Maduro, and it does explode the limits. You know, Venezuela was still incredibly extractivist. Um, it was still based on this sort of charismatic model. Um, it was still very private ownership, you know, oriented. It was still capitalist in a, in a profound sense. It, it, it was also a...
1: dependent on how, you know, the fossil fuel industry,
3: Absolutely. Yeah. So if we think about climate change, I mean, the contradictions just heightened up another level. So I think despite that, there was all sorts of popular energy that, that was happening. There was all sorts of interesting participatory experiments, and they weren't able to sort of be sustained. And I'd say that, you know, two points come to mind as sort of closing out the Venezuelan case in a sense. One is the way that a lot of the contradictions were dealt with was through constructing parallel institutions, which was a short term and even medium term fix. So there was sort of, you know, if you encounter uh, difficulties in a ministry, you just set up a new ministry for popular power, and you try to do it that way. And that might let you overcome the the limits. But then those people opposing you are still there. And they're still able to oppose other things. And they're still able to sort of exert things. So not going after the bureaucratic sort of contradictions and resistance has a cost eventually. Mm -hmm. And I think that came to bear under Maduro, particularly. And then second, I think that U.S. sanctions have to be the sort of key thing that we're talking about with the Venezuelan crisis today, that... You know, Maduro really screwed up in all sorts of ways. He has become incredibly repressive. There's credible UN reports of crimes against humanity and, you know, gruesome stuff. I've reviewed some books that will be coming out soon-ish about sort of horrible police practices, just killing young men of color in Caracas and, you know, the worst stuff you see in the U.S. happening in Caracas and in Venezuela. So that that's true. But the broader context is just these horrific U.S. sanctions, which did start under Obama in kind of a gentle, if you will, fashion, and then really ratcheted up under Trump. And then Biden has actually eased them a little bit. So, you know, the next year might be kind of interesting, but um, setting aside the question of where Venezuela might go, the crisis that we're seeing now, you know, of eight or nine years of out-migration and hunger and poverty and just horrific living conditions is very, very much the U.S. responsibility. And U.S. officials were aware of that. I mean, Marco Rubio, uh, he didn't say we want to make the economy scream, but he he tweeted at the time about how they were making Venezuelans suffer and they sort of knew that would happen. I think he tweeted some images of Darth Vader even, um, almost laughing about the suffering the U.S. was imposing. So that was just obvious and clear and intentional. And it had an effect. I mean, Venezuela now is what you don't want to be. You know, I think Chile, (laughs) you know, you talked about the migrants, but also there's a specter of Venezuela that is everywhere in Latin America and the US. You know, anything Mm -hmm. that is socialist is Venezuela. Anything that's leftist is Venezuela. Oh, you want compost? You're going to turn into Venezuela, which means economic disaster, political repression. So it's sort of an
1: updating of the Cold War model, in a way.
3: Exactly. You know, and I would say one of the reasons that I like talking about my book is to push back against that and say, it wasn't just that there was a lot more to this. And we need to have a much fuller analysis of what happened in Venezuela. um, Because it was not just this sort of disaster that it looks like today. And the disaster itself is more complicated than it's made out to be. But beyond that, there was all these amazing things that happened. Yes, they were built on contradictions, but they also empowered people to a degree rarely seen in history. And that's important.
1: And do any of those things survive?
3: That's a great question. And one I can't fully answer because I haven't gotten down to Venezuela in a couple of years because of COVID and various you know challenges. Some of them survived for quite a while. So Torres, my leftist sort of case in Venezuela, was going well. I was there in 2016. And at least a few years after that, the participatory budgeting was still going. It still had non-Chavistas participating. It was under tremendous strain, there was political strains, there was a loss of pluralism, there was major challenges relating to hyperinflation. But it was continuing. And that's impressive. Even during the beginning of this massive, massive crisis, the right wing Venezuelan case, which had this, you know, surprisingly impressive participatory budget, through 2013 did not really survive. And so that one, I think, did show the limits of When leftist hegemony crumbles, which happened after Chávez died, I think that nobody from at least 2014 onwards could say that Maduro was hegemonic in a Gramscian sense. I mean, from at least 2015, 2016, he was ruling by force. Um, And it did, did, you know, the right turn to the right again. (laughs) They came home, if you will, and they, they stopped behaving like Lula and started you know, moving in a Guaido direction, you know, one Guaido who proclaimed himself president and was a far right uh, leader within Venezuela, he became the emblem of the Venezuelan opposition by 2019. And this earlier moment was sort of effectively left and sort of discarded. And so sadly, that didn't last. And so I think that points to how do we think about, you know, the conditions. And I think that also points to the challenge of Um, If you have leftist hegemony in one country, but you don't have it globally, then, you know, if the conditions that led to leftist hegemony are gone, then it's not going to continue. And so, you know, capitalist hegemony or right-wing hegemony, you know, liberal democratic hegemony is much more robust because it is global. And, you know, what we saw in Venezuela was anti-systemic and, you know, pushing against that. And so it was inevitably more fragile and
1: and it's still, of course, we're, I, we want to get on to Bolivia, but it begs the question as I was reading it and thinking about, well, you know, this is made possible by certain unique circumstances, including the oil revenues, the populist leader, the, you know, largesse of the local budgets, at least in comparison to what was there before. But it begs the question about whether this is a model that could go on elsewhere. And, you know, let's say even in the U.S. at, at local levels. Um, but before Keep that in the back of your mind because I want we we don't have a tremendous amount of time left and I want to get into the Bolivian case, which everybody remembers. I think Cochabamba, at least, you know, and then there was that wonderful film that followed by um Ila yuvia also the Rain, I think, which really just shows the worst of the neoliberal reforms that was privatizing water, you know. And then you got these mass outbursts and mass, you know, revolts that led to Evo Morales becoming president. So take it up from there and describe what you saw and perhaps how you were surprised by what you saw.
3: Definitely. So at the national level, you see a a classic crisis of hegemony, a crisis of representation from 2000 to 2005. The neoliberal model is just completely uh, opposed and rejected by the population and by very strong, very mobilized popular movements. And so that leads to the election of Evo Morales. But you still have you know, a strong opposition to that. You have a sort of mestizo white elite, which had controlled Bolivian, you know, national governments for decades, if not centuries, in a certain sense. And they were pissed and they did not, they wanted their power back, but the demographics of Bolivia were against them. And so they threw everything they had at getting rid of Morales. They really opposed the constituent assembly. They fomented violence at the street level. They did all sorts of political maneuvers. They supported a major sort of right-wing civic uprising in 2008 that some refer to as a coup, although I'm not quite sure that label is justified, but it was a major uprising. And they didn't succeed. So, you know, Morales survives all of that. He relies on the social movement base to do so. He mobilizes them selectively. And then he sort of gets political control from around 2009, 2010 onwards. And then, unfortunately he turns to the right and you can see this to some extent if you go way back to even before he became president in 2002 his party the movement to socialism and it earlier was called the sort of political instrument for the sovereignty of the people so it has an earlier history that's fascinating as well but Under Morales, they continuously push things in a sort of electoral, representative, democratic direction from like 2002 onwards. And when he's in office, that dynamic continues as well. And so he's pushing more in a sort of moderate fashion. And you really see that after 2009, 2010, where he's making deals with the right wing elites who were sort of opposing him vociferously, people who are calling him for to be ousted by the military. He's lunching with them in 2013. He's cutting deals with right-wing mayors in Santa Cruz Mm. and other places and squashing popular movements that Moss had supported to some extent at the local level before that. And so this sort of demobilizing of the popular forces um, just leaves a lot of popular movements, social movements, frustrated and hopeless. And, you know, in the city of Santa Cruz, you just see a sort of right-wing government that is totally opposed to any real version of democracy they they're not Hmm. explicitly against liberal democracy or representative democracy but they're really against any form of you know people having power and moss unfortunately kind of joins with them and they they support that from around 2013 on and then strangely or surprisingly in el alto where the moss is they control the mayor they they you know they have a mosque candidate as mayor and control city council from 2010 to 2015 a similar dynamic happens and they're just trying to sort of get social movements under control they have this fascinating phrase you know politicians in el alto and, and local leaders told me about the thesis of the dictatorship of social organizations where they think of social organizations as too powerful and we need to get them to bring them to heal this is from the left this is the you know, the movement to socialism, government trying to sort of do that. So the national level changes filter down to the local level. But for all that, I will say that, you know, Morales does achieve a lot of really remarkable things. Um, Bolivia becomes a more inclusive, a more equal, a uh, less racist society. Poverty rates go down, inequality goes down, economic growth is significant and sustained. The IMF loves Morales, which is actually a funny <laughs> yeah. thing. You know, from two thousand nine onwards, they're constantly saying this is our guy. You know, he's doing all the things. Right. Although he's not doing what they say, he's, that's
1: a, he, I saw that in your book. I thought exactly because if he had done what they said, it would have contracted the economy.
3: Exactly. Yeah, he's doing heterodox policy. He's doing yeah. a lot of state spending. He's doing countercyclical sort of things. So you know, he's a disappointment from my sort of research perspective in terms of participation. But in so many other ways, you know, there is a lot of success. But. I do think that what I'm looking at speaks to the coup in 2019. Yeah. And one of the right. things about the coup is that there's very limited popular support. This is a three week period of right wing, you know, middle class anti Morales uprising, sort of protest in the streets. And there's not a lot of Moss supporters in the streets against that. And part of the reason for that is people talk about it as sort of the disgust, the sort of, you know, exhaust, but also the demobilization and the sort of you know, soft repression and the cooptation of leaders and the move moving away from the sort of mobilizing rhetoric, mobilizing sort of policies um, that that's coming to play in 2019. And that allows the coup to succeed. Um, And then under the right wing government of Janine Anya is a far right, crazy racist and are, religious
1: saying now know. the Bible's in the house or something like that. I remember and I remember <laughs> I, I, you know, did a show with it with Linda Farthing and it was just unbelievable also because uh, Morales had become, you know, more autocratic and and somewhat corrupt. I was a little surprised about that. But as you say, even though there was not a lot of support, there was opposition to the coup.
3: Oh, yeah. But, I mean, the- But I then
1: she implemented just horrific policies.
3: Yeah. And that spurs a rearticulation of social mobilization, which forces an election, which was delayed at least two, if not three times, by Anya saying COVID, 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 we can't have the election. And finally they there's just this sort of social explosion. And that leads to the finance minister Luis Arce getting elected um, in 2020, yeah, October 2020. Um and Anyas is out of office. Although now there's this huge, sad crisis of mosque where Morales wants to run as the as the candidate for Moss in 2025. Arce also wants to run. So right now the Moss is being totally torn apart from within. It's not looking good at the moment, and that could lead to, you know, the far right or the right taking over in Bolivia in 2025. I mean, if if this current sort of split between different leftists within Bolivia uh, continues and it splits the vote in 2025, that could really open the door to the right. So, you know, looking forward, Venezuela's trajectory is, you know, maybe more hopeful in a way with the easing of sanctions and there's a presidential election and there's, you know, it's not necessarily profoundly hopeful, but Bolivia's is pretty unhopeful at the moment. I mean, hopefully they'll resolve things and figure it out, but um, there's a lot of contradictions. And a lot of those do go back to some of the dynamics that I look at in the book.
1: I think also your book really shows the initial promise and then the absolute limits of these kind of left populist uh, leaders and governments because it isn't proliferated it's quite different than in Chile i would say because there you do have this history of of movements that exploded in 2019 and borch of course comes from the student movement in an earlier period 2011 i think it was it's a very different society but what we're seeing now post pandemic and in this situation is it making it extremely difficult for left-leaning governments. But just in the final moments that we have here, I want to take it back to what your takeaway is and how you generalize what you saw and outside of Latin America, let's say, or here and elsewhere, where people want more, I mean, this is the struggle in life, right? To have more control over your destiny. And given, you know, this very close look that you had at experiments, how do you see it? it, Did it change your ideas? Do you think about, you know, demands for participatory budgeting uh, at local or state levels elsewhere? That's your...
3: Yeah, great questions. I mean, when I started the research on this, I was uh, at Uh, UC Berkeley, a graduate student in sociology. And I was actually doing a master's project on the Obama campaign of 2008. And so I had a brief moment where I thought, I wonder if I can compare Chavez, Morales, and Obama. And my advisor, Michael Burvoy, said, you're crazy. No way. You can't compare the empire and the imperialized countries. And so he was smart and I didn't try to do that. But I do think that, you know, thinking about the Obama campaign of all things in 2008, You have to organize and mobilize the people. I think that that's what Chavez did that was really interesting and successful. And that was the sort of social political base for this leftist hegemony. There was tremendous levels of resources, but also popular organization. It was incentivized. Um, you could get money, you could get resources. And there was a discourse about it. There was a model. It was thought about. Um, it wasn't fully coherent, but it was part of a really big national political project that people believed in and eventually was called Socialism of the 21st Century. And a lot of people believed in that and they wanted to go well beyond the Chavista officials and toward Mm -hmm. what Chavez was talking about, even beyond Chavez. And I think that that organizing and mobilizing the people in, you know, in support of this big ideology, this big idea, true democracy, a socialist democracy was really powerful. And that's a key thing that was happening. So of course, oil was there. And there's other other factors, Chavez's charisma. But I think that, you know, having the the state organizing and mobilizing people and doing then at the local level, sometimes in very democratic, very participatory ways. And there's particular local circumstances that allowed that. So Torres, again, this most successful case was in opposition to the regional power block, opposition to the national government, even though they were Chavista, even though they sort of supported that. And so it gave it this flavor of constantly organizing, constantly mobilizing the people in this oppositional way, but from city hall And that gave it this rich sort of character that I think provides a model of what democratic socialism could look like. I mean, I think that in the book, I kind of end with my favorite theorist, you know, Pulantzis and talking about sort of democratic socialism and only left a tiny smidgen of Pulantzis. People told me to take him out of the book, so I didn't have too many references. But, um, you know, he has a model of how do you sustain a democratic socialism? And you have to constantly organize, constantly mobilize. You have to combine support from above with initiative from below. And it's a really delicate, difficult balance. But I think in Torres, you actually see that sustained for a decade, if not more. And in Venezuela, you see some version of that, you know, happening for a while. So it doesn't continue. It doesn't go far enough. But I think that would be my lesson that you have to have state society synergy, if you will. I mean, that's another thing people talk about. You know, you need the state involved because the state has Resources, legitimacy, control, rhetoric, you know, tools that social movements don't have. But you need social movements to constantly push the state to actually be more democratic, more participatory.
1: I just want to comment just one thing on this. (laughs) Because, you know, it's a a really interesting question. You raised democratic socialists, and that's what Bernie pushed her. But on these examples, it's not socialist. You know, it's still a capitalist economy, and that's a really, you know, gigantic thing that you cannot, you know, avoid. And then on the other hand, what I see and listening to you right now, I'm hearing the way, like even what the Soviets promised is that was not only a tool of revolution, but it But it became the embryo of the new society in these, you know, organizations that were completely, you know, representative and voluntary and participatory and governing. But it all depends on power. And that's, you know, that's very much the issue here. And it's and of course, then the other one is, you know, about how much how far you can go in a single country or even a pair of countries when the model around the world isn't that, you know, and there's resources like you saw with the United States under Bush attempting a coup that was laughable. Um, But nonetheless, you see a great deal of pushback. So I know you want to talk a little bit about Bolivia, and we have a few more minutes. So do that. And then let's talk finally about whether or not you think this is a model that can be generalized and how you see that.
3: Sure. Um, and I think you keep coming back to the crucial question of capitalism and economic. <laughs> I mean, that's that's fundamental. Torres did not overcome that, but they did actually make some progress. They had a socialist electrical meter, meter factory. The participatory budget itself was about economic resources, and there was a lot of land reform that was you know, being talked about and, and done things with. So people were thinking about the economy. They were thinking about how do you socialize the economy in the sense of society, not just the state, but society really controlling it and having democratic control over economic decisions? And there was some progress, but there's profound limits. You, you just can't go that far at the local level. You can't even go that far at the national level. So, right. you know, the regional context of the left turn is important. And that also provided a lot of space. And that I think that's sort of, you know, another crucial one. So, you know, Bolivia, I think, you know, the the bigger lessons of Bolivia, that you've sort of been asking about, I think that they should have done more mobilizing, more sort of organizing the people. And they they took their eye off of that, thinking that we have, we can- And it should
1: come have come from the ground up rather than yeah, from the top they, down.
3: They took it for granted and it, it came to bite them, you know, in the 2019 coup. And I think even now you're seeing some of the problems within Bolivia. So I think that they made compromises, they made choices. And I think, you know, there's other- you know, scholars, Théa Real-Francos, who really looks at the dilemmas of left governance. And that's crucial. You know, we can't just think of this as decontextualized. The choices that Morales made, the choices that Chávez made were hard choices. We can't just sort of take a moral stance that was wrong. We have to look at, you know, what are they wrestling with? But we can also Mm -hmm. say some of the choices were the wrong choices. We could say we wish they took a different one in retrospect. So then, you know, generalizing beyond this, I think that having a big project, something people can believe in, this is where Bernie got it right. Um, You know, he didn't talk Mm -hmm. that much about democratic socialism in his you know 2016 2020 campaigns but he talked about we he talked about us he talked about something that's profoundly anti-individual and he talked about a collective project and i think that spoke to so many people you know i'm thinking you know february 2020 the nevada primaries like one of the highlights of you know my last decade uh Mm -hmm. just seeing the sort of culinary you know all the different unions in in las vegas and the the collective project and that speaks to what was happening as well. You need working people. So the economy is also crucial. You need, you know, people who are making the world go, making Venezuela go, making Las Vegas go. They need to be organizing. They need to be deciding. They need to be at the center of things. But you also need a bigger project. You also need political leadership. You also need people to sort of, you know, articulate that in particular ways. And you have to fill the political space. If you don't do it, I they will fill it or, you know, Trump will fill it or Biden will fill it, you know, We can't abandon that political space, but I think, you know, the big lessons are to, I mean, there's a lot of lessons, you know, (laughs) thinking about these for days and days, but I think that, you know, one of the lessons is just mobilize the people, do that. I think another big lesson that is obvious to me is... In a context like Latin America, you have to think about industrialization, you have to think about economic diversification. Extractivism cannot be a model going forward. And if we're thinking about climate change, that has to be a green sort of industrialization. I think Brazil is actually a really interesting case now. Um, Under Lula, I think there's a lot of contradictions there, limits, all sorts of things, but there's some serious thinking about how do we actually, you know, do an egalitarian green transition as far as we can go. Colombia is also an interesting case under Gustavo Petro. And here we see learning. I mean, some of the things that Petro is talking about and Lula are talking about are going beyond what Chavez was doing, going beyond what Morales is doing. And Petro is talking about climate change, as is Boric in in Chile, in really profound and important ways. He hasn't made a lot of progress in actually implementing a more sort of sustainable, you know, eco transition because of a lot of factors within Colombia. But he's thinking about it. He's talking about it. So. I think that, you know, thinking about the economy, thinking about a material base, you need a material base, you need a political base, you need a social base for these left experiments. And you have to combine all three. And there's positive and negative lessons um, from my book and from the broader left turn sort of pink tide experiment, which is not over. I mean, that's the other great thing (laughs) that it's still going. It still has, you know, a lot of hope. You still see, you know, amazing things happening in Latin America under difficult circumstances, to be sure. But I think that there's still a place for for real, you know, realistic hope uh, within the region.
1: Well, that's terrific to hear. And, you know, as you were just saying that, I was thinking in terms of general global terms. And of course, we've seen Putin in an extractivist state, <laughs> but in a very, very different uh, scenario, changing the century with this invasion of Ukraine now being taken up, you know, with the other invasion that is of Gaza, which is just unspeakable in so many ways. But as you were also saying that, I was thinking the greatest thing happening here is the labor movement, which is really uh, flexing its muscle and winning. And so it seems like there's still a lot of hope. And even, even the things that you said about made Bernie popular, or even let's say when your you know first idea of exploring the movement around Obama's campaign, which I had an argument with Adolf Reed on air about because I I said that it was pent up expectation and it was the younger generation, it was great, and he said, eh, it's a fan club, you know. <laughs> but it's I think that you are speaking to something about you know you can't do any of this without mobilization and support. So uh, I guess we've run out of time, and I want to thank you so much. This has been really interesting. Um, encourage people to look at the book, Democracy on the Ground, Local Politics in Latin America's Left Turn by Gabriel Hetland. And he's an associate professor of Latin American, Caribbean and Latino, Latina studies at SUNY Albany in cold New York, and, and writes about democracy and politics and social movements in Latin America. Thanks so much for joining us today.
3: Thank you so much. I mean, all the questions are spinning in my head. So I wish we could go for four hours, you know, Daniel.
1: Oh, we could another time. <laughs> These are the key questions of the era, right?
3: Of course. Yeah, yeah. No, this is such a pleasure. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you.
1: Okay. Enjoy. Thanks a lot. That's our show for today. I'd like to thank my guest, Gabriel Hetland. Thanks also to executive producer Robert Brenner, to producer, director, engineer Melissa Figueroa, with Editing and Engineering Today from Juliana Gota and Gary Baca in Master Control. You can listen to this and other archive shows as well as subscribe to the podcast at KPFK.org. Click Audio Archives and scroll down to beneath the surface with Susie Wiseman. More information on programs and guests are on our Facebook page. That's Beneath the Surface with Susie Wiseman. You've been listening to Beneath the Surface on KPFK, Pacifica Radio for all of Southern California and beyond, streaming live and archived at kpfk.org. Thanks for listening and stay tuned. And please pledge your support with a generous gift. Become a listener sponsor of KPFK and this show, Beneath the Surface. I'm Susie Wiseman.
2: Well, thank you, Susie Wiseman. She's asking you to go to the phones, 818-985-5735 for Beneath the Surface, 818-985-KPFK or pledge securely online at kpfk.org. We're in our fun drive, so we're asking you to uh, support this radio station. We're going to be pitching... Actually, this fun drive will go for probably for another couple of weeks. So uh, we don't have much time. Uh, We do need you to uh, call, though, and support this radio station, 818-985-5735, by any means possible. Uh, You can get a t-shirt at a $50 pledge or a uh, mug for a $50 donation. So that's. Calling 818-985-5735. It's because of you we survive. We are listener-sponsored. No corporate underwriting. No ads. No commercials. This is it, folks. The truth, truth. The truth is real. Power from the people telling you what's going on in the streets, what's going on in America, what's going on around the world. You support shows like Democracy Now!, Think Outside the Cage!, and the Tom Hartman program right here. 818-985-5735. Now here's a flashback from our beloved Roy of Hollywood, who passed away on April 20th last year. Roy and Diane want to encourage you to join the KPFK Sustainer Circle.
0: And you're listening to KPFK Los Angeles, non-commercial listener-sponsored Pacifica Radio for all of Southern Parts of Central California and on the web at kpfk.org, I am Roy of Hollywood, and uh, I do a broadcast at night, Monday through Thursday night, midnight to six am. It's one of the top four programs in uh, getting a subscription, so the night people are alive, and so they let us come in a bit in the daytime, even and with me is Diane, my partner.
4: And it's my honor and privilege to raise money for KPFK. I've been doing it for a few decades. And uh, thanks to all of you who have been so generous with us. We come to you with some urgency uh, in that we are needing to not only uh, make our budget, our goal, but we are paying down a debt and there are, to- there are deadlines on these things, lawyer-type deadlines, court-type deadlines. And so we come to you asking for your donation, large or small, if you are a listener. A very small amount of our listeners are sponsors.
0: About 10%, usually.
4: Yes, so if you can see your way clear to not only pay for yourself, but for someone else due to these dire times. And we are looking for two specific type of listeners. One, our new listeners or You know, people who have listened for a while but have never come on board and become a subscriber. Or
0: for years and years.
4: Or for decades. So we are appealing to those of you who have never given before to give us a try with a 50 or a 25 or a 100, whatever you can see your way clear, donation at 818-985-5735 or at kpfk.org. The other type of listener we are looking for is one of who can sustain us. We call this our sustainer circle. circle. Yes. And it really provides a critically uh, dependable stream, stream of income. And so to sustain us, you're bringing us news and music and information uh, to serve the, the cultural welfare of our community so much more with your sustaining sub- subscription. And it's easier, actually. Once a month, we will... You will invite us to take uh, 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 dollars or more,
0: or a hundred
4: exactly, or a thousand from your credit card, and that way you, you don't have to think about it. And our manager, when he goes to pay the bills, can just go ahead and make as we're all doing now, you decide which are the priority bills. We have some very high priority, and then we have some people who have been waiting a long time to be paid. And that's a tough job. But that's not for us to worry about. It's just for us to donate. 818-985-5735 or kpfk.org. Thank you so much for your generosity. So many mm. people have given over the decades. We've been here over 60 years, and we've been able to do it.
0: 61 but- years.
4: It's an amazing experiment. It's it's a, almost as amazing as democracy itself. When you think about why would you pay for something you can get for free? But the trick is it's not free to make it happen, and that's why we need you. We are listener-sponsored, free speech, non-corporate radio, and it's it, as necessary now as it was in the last four years when we had someone who was... Uh, uh, not as uh, not as good of a leader as one might have hoped, let's say. And now we have different leadership, but we have to.
0: Aniel, well, very beloved manager. Yeah. One of yeah. the great managers, and I've yeah. been here for a long time. And Aniel is the best. He's really the best, and the staff agrees.
4: Yeah. Let's let's not lose what we have. Help us stay on the air, keep KPFK going, help pay the few staff that are remaining and keep the wonderful voices that you appreciate, you learn from, wonderful voices that you appreciate, you learn from, you enjoy and uh, help be the media. Let people know about KPFK.